On this episode of the London Lyceum, I talk with Dr. Jennifer Hurt, professor of Christian ethics at Yale Divinity School, about natural law, reform virtue, and ethics in general. We cover topics like what is natural law? How has the reform tradition thought about natural law and how that fits in? Has that thinking shifted over time? And what about virtue in general and ethics in general? How have reformed and Protestant and potentially modern thinkers differed or remained similar on this topic? We cover this and more in this episode. And if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can always hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com. Or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am the solo host today, Jordan Stefaniak. Brandon's not with us. He is hanging out with his family on the lake, I think, so he didn't have access to the internet. Um, But I'm really looking forward to talking with Dr. Jennifer Hurt on uh, the topic of natural law, reform virtue, and just ethics in general. Uh, I met Dr. Hurt at a conference at Christopher Newport University, I think maybe two years ago now, and uh, really learned a lot from her. And I, I, to be honest with you, I had no idea who you were before I went there. And I found out and I learned all this stuff. And you've gotten all these great articles and all these things that are really, really helpful. Because uh, at least from my experience, I'm an evangelical. It seems like there's not a lot of deep ethical thinking going on. Uh, so finding some uh, a resource like you is really helpful for me to think through ethics and then finding you writing on natural law and reform virtue and how the reformed have thought about that. I thought this was a great topic to consider because I think I've seen, at least in my circle, a lot of reformed people are wanting to retrieve Thomistic ethics, virtue ethics, and, and things of that nature. Um, but I think, as we'll talk about, you point out some inconsistencies um, between these two understandings. Uh, of virtue and natural law. So before we get into that, uh, Dr. Hurt, maybe uh, for those of our listeners who don't know who you are, give us maybe 30 to 60 seconds, just a little bit of background on yourself so they can place you in a little bit of a context and then maybe tell us about what got you into thinking about ethics and thinking about natural law and thinking about those types of things. Well, Jordan, uh, first off, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this program. I'm, I'm Really thrilled to have the chance to talk with you about these these uh, topics and looking forward to our conversation. I, I'm on the faculty at Yale Divinity School, um, and this is um, makes a decade of my being on the faculty here, so a good portion of my career. Before that, I spent about a decade on the faculty of the University of Notre Dame. So I had this wonderful opportunity as a, as a Protestant Christian to be in an ecumenical um, but heavily Roman Catholic context, which really has enriched and shaped my research. And and my doctoral training was at Princeton University, so in a secular department of religion. So I've really inhabited a host of different settings um, that's been fruitful for my own reflection on on ethics and on moral theology. And I think um, in terms of what led me to the study of ethics and to reflection on the natural law, uh, there's so many things that I could say, but I will point to one thing, which is uh, lies way, way back in my personal history, which is the fact that I was born in India and I spent um, 10 years of my childhood and my adolescence living in the Philippines in an international scientific community. It was at a rice research institute, so international agricultural research. 
And just being in that environment of with Hindus and Christians and Muslims and and atheists and what have you together, um, people who were really committed to making a positive difference in the world, uh, I think that definitely set me on set me on a track of asking theological questions and ethical questions and questions about how, in the midst of all of our deep differences, we can come together to work for a better world. That's awesome. I had no idea that that's where you grew up and everything. That's really cool. So I guess on this topic, uh, let's maybe just level set a little bit and just, can you give us a quick definition of what natural law is? And then once we do that, is there a distinctive understanding of natural law for Protestants or for modern thinkers? Or is this, when we say natural law, everybody's referring to the same thing? So I think we could say that there is a very basic baseline definition we could give of the natural law as something like a notion of universal morality that's accessible to all people through reason. That is, in principle, does not require uh, revelation uh, and that it's, it's binding on people. So it's both accessible to all people and binding on all people. So that would really be the core notion. But then that said, there are, it's, you know, it's a tradition that reaches all the way back to the Stoics. So it's certainly a tradition of reflection on, on ethics that has gone through many, many different uh, phases, different strands. And, and you asked in particular about Protestant natural law and modern natural law. And what's, what's interesting there is that there, there was a time um, when those two were almost used equivalently. And when they were, when modern natural law was used to refer to the same group of thinkers as Protestant natural law, it was really used to refer to a small cluster of thinkers, um, Hugo Grotius, um, Thomas Hobbes, uh, Samuel Pufendorf, and John Locke, a cluster of thinkers who, were, who saw themselves as doing something quite new in their natural law reflection. Um, and the new thing that they thought they were doing was reflecting on empirical human nature, reflecting on human nature as we just find it out there in the world. And, um, and, and drawing from that conclusions about how we are to behave. It was a really an enterprise that you could call a, a form of natural theology in that it wasn't, it, I mean, yes, we continue to debate about exactly what Thomas Hobbes believed in his heart of hearts, but regardless of what he himself believed and whether he was an atheist, he was still engaged in a form of natural theology that is for the purposes of his reasoning, he was assuming God exists. Um, so they're all assuming um, some kind of a theological framework, but it's one in which we do not need to go to revelation or scripture to understand the natural law. What we do is ref we reflect on um, human nature as observed. But that meant that they were abstracting from the question of the difference between created human nature and fallen human nature. Yeah. They were just thinking, you just look at what you see out there and you can, you can determine from that what God's purposes are for us. So how we ought to act. Um, and then they were interested in particular on in, in um, self-interestedness and sociability. So in terms of, well, what are the most salient features of human nature that are most important to our ethical reflection? They thought, well, it's this fact that we're both um, sociable creatures and we're self-interested creatures. 
So that's this tradition of modern natural law. Well, then what is Protestant natural law? Well, it's, it's in reality much, much more than those thinkers. Um, and you could say it's any Protestant thinkers who are engaged in reflection on natural law. Right, so it would mean many things. But if we if we try to give some general characteristics of Protestant natural law, apart from this small um, cohort of modern natural lawyers who saw themselves as doing this new thing, it, it looks quite different. So um, there is a general acceptance that the the fall is of critical importance. The fact that we're looking at fallen human nature is critically important. There is no assumption that we will be able to um, come up with a detailed account of the natural law without scripture. In fact, scripture is seen as the most important source of our knowledge of the natural law. So we don't just go to, to, to the scripture to scripture to find divine law, to find what you know, God has specially revealed to, to particular people. We go to scripture to find out what God has in principle made available through reason. Now that, that may strike us as a little bit uh, odd to think that, well, if you can get access to it through reason, why do you need to go to scripture for it? Well, because of the fall. Uh, the fall means that what reason would have given you access to it no longer does a very good job of. Um, and in, in scripture, you have a, a combination of um, things that were, were revealed um, to the Hebrews, specific legal requirements for the people of Israel, and the natural law. So you need to be able to distinguish those from one another. That's awesome. So would, would you say it potentially fair to say that the key distinction between these two is it seems modern natural law has a little bit more confidence in their ability to understand what nature's saying versus Protestants ha are more skeptical that they can understand nature without scripture. Yeah, I think you could certainly sum it up that way. Okay. So then when I think about the subset of reform or some set of Protestants in re the re reform tradition and their thinking on natural law. What is, do they have a distinct understanding of natural law that's different than Protestants on the whole, or are they pretty much in lockstep with, with Protestants when they think about natural law? You know, I think increasingly we're seeing that the similarities between say Lutheran and reform natural law gr yeah. greatly outweigh any differences. So, for example, it used to be said that only in reform thought do you really have a proper third use of the law, yeah. um, the, the, the you know, productive use of the law. Right. But in fact, that's no longer accepted by Lutheran scholars who see even in Luther a third use of the law. So I, I would say there's really, um, there's really significant continuity. Again, another example would be um, we used to talk about reformed theories of resistance, you know, resistance to to oppressive political authorities. Well, there's Lutheran theories of resistance to political authorities as well, and both of them make appeal to the natural law. So, and, you know, it, those aren't really, really significant dif differences. The one thing that I would say is that there is, a, there is something of a difference between Calvin and later Reformed thinkers, in that Calvin is the most negative about our capacity to know the natural law. 
and that that the fall has damaged our noetic capacities very very significantly um and and that you know has has made it easy to to conclude that that there was some sort of a turn away from natural law but in fact and we certainly see in in reformed thinkers directly um, after and, and in Calvin's own time, who are much more sanguine about what can be gained from the natural law, what, what even fallen human reason and fallen human will are capable of. So is it is it really possible, though, for, I guess, traditional, consistent reform thinking on natural law to truly retrieve a Thomistic understanding or a Catholic understanding uh, of natural law and actually remain consistent. Um, cause I think, as I mentioned earlier, at least from what I see, there's a lot of reform thinkers who are wanting to retrieve this. And maybe that's just because they don't realize that there's other ethical theories that are outside of just the Thomistic tradition. They, they only know of Alistair McIntyre and that's about the extent of their ethical knowledge. So uh, is it possible to do that or, or do they, or is it not possible? So this is an interesting question, and it's one on which my own judgment has shifted somewhat. <laughs> um, and it's shifted because, on the one hand, I've I've become more and more aware of just the the extent, the robust re- extent of reflection on natural law yeah. in in the Reformed tradition that that it's just very continuous, um, and it's used productively in. Um, in the whole understanding of what the responsibilities are of, of magistrates. Um, so that's on one hand. And, and I would say as well, I don't, I don't any longer think that there is a dramatic break between Catholic understandings of the natural law and Protestant it, understandings. It really is um, a slight matter of, of emphasis. Now, if you're talking about later Catholic, not scholastic Catholic understandings of the natural law, but but modern Catholic understandings of the natural law, then then there are some some features of that later Catholic thought that I think are not quite in line with the earlier. But if you're looking at earlier scholastic and you know high scholastic thought um, and reformed scholastic thought, it's it's very very similar. So. For, just to make it a little bit more concrete, um, they would all agree that our best access to the natural law is through the Decalogue and the twofold love commandment, right? So they would agree, yes, in theory, this is knowable without revelation. In, in theory, reason, reason gives us access to the natural law. But they would agree, again, all of them, that um, you know, human nature is fallen and limited God, you know, God reveals these things to us to make it easier for us in the midst of our fallenness to know um, the right and the good. And, you know, we, we look to the Decalogue and we look to, to Jesus, Jesus' new commandments for, for guidance there. So it's really, there's really no difference um, in terms of the basic affirmations. It starts to look somewhat different because the political situation was different. So in in reformed in, in magisterial Protestantism more generally, not just reformed territories, but um, also Lutheran, the magistrate is now seen as responsible for 
kind of hitting reset instead of just living with, well, you've got civil law here and you've got canon law here and you've got scriptural law here. The, the magistrate is supposed to um, kind of start fresh. Um, and, and the responsibility is to build on the natural law, take the natural law as a touchstone and devise specific laws for your time and place that are in harmony with the natural law. So, and, and this is totally off the wall. So if you want to punt this, you can, but as you're talking about how magistrate and gov- civil government shifted a little bit, I'm wondering how often is it that our ethical reflection just in general as a society changes when there are significant governmental changes? So I'm thinking, you know, of reform thinkers in the 16th, 17th century, they have a very different mindset on, you know, just general government, governmental structure, whereas contemporary reform thinkers, I mean, at least in America, you know, you're living a democracy. So does that shape how they think about natural law and ethics to any degree? It can't not shape it, right? So, so especially when you get to a, a level of some concreteness, like, mm-hmm. like what what are we going to do with this reflection exactly? How, how is it going to be put to work? So, if, if you're thinking about 17th century Reformed thought, the the assumption is it's going to be put to work um, by magistrates and by Christian magistrates who are, you know, doing their duty as as good Christians. Um, if you think about the, the contemporary moment, well, it's it's somehow supposed to be informing individual Christian citizens who are, as you say, living in a democracy, and it's a very pluralistic democracy. And so trying on the one hand to be faithful Christians and trying, on the other hand, to think about uh, what is our responsibility toward this world that we share with many others who don't uh, don't accept all of our presuppositions and all of our commitments. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask this question. It's a little bit more specific on the Reformed thinking on natural law, and I don't want to forget it. So I think in one of your papers, and maybe you've shifted your your own position since then, you were talking about how, I guess, a reformed conception of natural law um, it, it can undergird a just civic order to some degree, but it struggles to be seen as a source of some substantive action guiding moral norms. So it seems to be a more negative view of natural law where it's just, it's good as a political whole, but for a person, an individual, it doesn't really have the ability to, to help you guide you morally. Is that still consistent with what you think on the whole of reform thinking of natural law? Uh, or have you shifted? Because I, I guess when I think of somebody like Calvin, uh, I know he's got his census divinitatis, where you know he's got this. Just everybody has this implanted understanding that God exists, and if I remember correctly, he seems to say everybody has the the Decalogue, I guess, imprinted on their hearts. But then he does have a very negative view, where it seems like, but it's kind of useless since the fall. So, help me understand what what is. And maybe it's just variegated. Maybe you say it just depends on the reform thinker um, of what they think about this natural law. So is it both positive and negative? Is it only negative? Is it, well, how, do, how should I think about that? Absolutely. And that's a good question. So really, there's a lot of agreement. I mean, of course, there are going to be some individual differences. But the basic agreement is that knowledge of and following the natural law is not salvific. 
It cannot put you in a right relationship with God. Um, and so in particular, in the first generation of the, of, Protestant, of the Protestant reformers, the emphasis is really on distinguishing the law from the gospel, whether, whether in a Lutheran frame or in a, or in a Calvinistic frame. Um, the, the law is primarily seen as um, holding us responsible. You know, we have just enough knowledge to be convicted of having disobeyed. We have just enough we don't know God as redeemer, says Calvin, but we know God as creator. Um, so we know that God is going to hold us responsible and that's fair and just. So that's really the, that's the negative strand. And it's, it's quite consistent. And there's nobody that says that the natural law is salvific. And, and that would have been uh, absolutely the case in scholastic Catholicism as well. Right. So again, that's not really a distinction between Catholics and Protestants. I mean, what you do get, though, in um, from the 17th century onward in Protestant territories um, is the notion that, well, we've got to build a civil civic order um, and, and and we're not looking to the church anymore. And we're looking to these local civil authorities who need to build a stable social order. And also, you know, define the order of the church as well. So have have plenary lawmaking power. And they thought that um, all of that was really, really important work, important to glorify God, important to honor God. None of it was salvific, um, but it, it needed to be done. It was sort of there um, alongside restoring a right relationship with God that only grace could make possible, that only faith could make possible. Now, that means that there's a pretty sharp separation, especially for Reformed thinkers, between um, what's going on in the civic order and what's going on in the order of, of faith and redemption. And it takes uh, several generations before we really see the development of something like a theological ethics within Protestant thought that tries to to say that ethics is not just civic and political, but it's also theological. Because I, I guess I, I can't help but think of, you know, our own contemporary context and thinking, if I can't have a firm natural law that can give some sort of concrete ethical knowledge for, for a very diverse society, as you mentioned, I don't know how useful it really, like, because I would think, I mean, as a Christian, I think virtue is a positive thing and I want everybody to have it. And I think it benefits everybody in society, whether they're Christian or not. But when it's so variegated and I don't just have one civil magistrate who, if he's a Christian, then he's going to, you know, enforce these things top down in this convoluted type of society. How do I go about um helping people think ethically? And I, don't, I guess that's more of just an open-ended, broad question. Um, but I imagine you've thought about some, to some degree, about how do we propagate virtue and ethics um, to such a diverse society? So, so what I would say that this notion of the natural law gives to Christians, um, Catholics and Protestants and uh, alike, is, is confidence that there is moral knowledge available to everybody. 
right? It gives, it gives us the confidence that it's meaningful to have conversations with those who don't share our religious beliefs. Um, and it gives us, that's theologically grounded confidence, right? It's not like, oh, some scientific authority is telling us that we should believe that we can arrive at moral agreement. It's specifically that we have, we have grounds in our faith to think that that should be possible. So what I'm saying it doesn't give us is it doesn't give us a shortcut. It doesn't give us a shortcut through actually having to have those conversations. Um, now, I mean, it might be useful here to bring in um, a distinction that the, that the medievals made between cinderesis and conscience. Yeah, and, see, I was going to I was going <laughs> to ask you but I made you say it so I don't look dumb. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean cinderesis is uh, the knowledge or awareness of the most basic moral principles. And the scholastics said that knowledge is universal and ineradicable. So this that's what the fall could not wipe out is is these basic, this basic, basic moral knowledge. Now, they don't anywhere actually tell us, or there are different accounts, perhaps, of, well, what are those moral, basic moral principles? So on, and here we have differing interpretations. So on one interpretation, the minimalist interpretation, the basic moral principle that cannot be eradicated is good is to be pursued and evil is to be avoided. And you can see how that's not action guiding because, you know, that we know that that is true. Um, it's true by definition, by, by understanding the words good and evil, you already understand that it's true. Um, but then you need to know, well, what's good and what's evil. So that's a minimalist interpretation. There's also a more maximalist interpretation according to which cinderacis, this this like the thing that never gets lost, that basic moral knowledge, actually knows everything in the Decalogue. So that would be a more maximalist version. But even there, let's take something nice and neat and clean, like don't murder. Well, you know, in some translations, it's do not kill. But there's lots of God-mandated killing that goes on in the Hebrew Bible. So, um, so it probably doesn't mean kill. It probably means don't murder. Well, then, which killings are murder and which killings aren't murder? We don't have, there's no way to settle that question in advance. We can, we can start to fill it out, but that's where, you know, the scholastics and Protestants understood that from culture to culture, there were differences in what was seen as acceptable forms of killing and not acceptable forms of killing. So when I say that there's no shortcut, I'm saying that we actually have to engage in our pluralistic society in these kinds of conversations about which forms of force are justified or what is, where, what is truth telling? What is the, in this context, is this a lie or is this, is this actually a form of, of honoring truth? All of these complicated discussions have to go on and Christians are obviously going to engage in them, looking to scripture, looking to church teaching, looking to the traditions of the churches, um, as well as looking to lots of other things. And so 
they will bring all of that into their conversations with their non-Christian neighbors. That makes sense. And uh, as I think about bringing even scripture to it, the topics that you mentioned, like, is, does this count as a lie or not? Uh, is this, when does it be, is this a killing or is this a murder? Even the Bible doesn't seem to give us all, you know, doesn't give us a list of here are the 50 scenarios that are lies. And here are the 50 scenarios that are telling the truth. And it's not that robust. It seems to give more general moral principles. So even then, um, I struggle, I guess, to understand how do I concrete apply apply this? So maybe this idea of conscience, I'd like to press in a little bit more. I know you gave us the the idea of synderesis. Um, talk to me a little bit more about conscience. So how does conscience function for the Reformed tradition? How does it function for uh, Catholic tradition? Are there major distinctives um, on how they're thinking our consciences function? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one one place where I think there there are some differences. Okay. So in um, in the scholastic tradition, and is way more complex than this, but I'm not going to get into all of the complexity. There's a basic <laughs> distinction between synderesis and conscience, where mm. synderesis grasps the basic moral principles, whatever they are, whether it's the minimalist version or the maximalist version. But conscience is not seen as knowledge of basic moral principles. Conscience is the act of applying those principles to specific cases. And because they had that distinction, they could then, um, they had a way of thinking about um, the ways in which conscience could go wrong, because it's easy to go wrong when you're applying a principle to a case. Uh, and, and their basic idea was, as you descend from, from universals or abstractions to particulars, there's many, many opportunities to go awry, to make a mistake. Uh, and so that all made sense to them. And, and they argue that you're bound by your conscience, that there is a sense in which that inner voice within that's, that's um, passing judgment on your actions is authoritative for you. But they also thought it could go, it could be wrong. Um, and if it's wrong, then basically they thought you would know it's wrong because an authority would tell you you had, you had gone astray. And so a conscience can be badly formed. It can also be reformed. And they're working in a, in a context in which there's basic trust of, of religious authorities as moral authorities. And so there's a basic trust that if a religious authority tells you that your conscience is wrong, you should go about getting it reformed. Okay. Well, if you think about the context within which the Protestant world is taking shape, it's a context of a significant religious disagreement. So it's much more complicated matter. Like, well, which, which religious authority would be telling me to fix my conscience? And, you know, do I trust that religious authority? I think that's um, one reason that conscience starts to um, take on a more absolutist kind of role. And cinderacis and conscience become collapsed into one another. Hmm. Now, in, in some sense, that was a perfectly reasonable thing because philologically, um, the distinction arose out of misunderstanding terms and making distinctions that didn't exist in the original patristic sources. But it had come to stand for a really useful distinction. 
between these basic moral principles and the act of applying them to complex particulars. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and in the Protestant world, you lose syndesis and it's just conscience. And conscience um, by Calvin, for example, is, is really seen as God's voice within. It's your access to God's judgment of, of your, you and your actions. Um, and, obvi- and, and, and so conscience is now seen as something that's infallible. Hmm. That that creates a problem because if conscience is infallible, but conscience is telling different people to do different things, what you know, where does this leave us? So, I mean, Calvin's answer to that is we do a really good job of ignoring our conscience, of deceiving hmm. ourselves about our conscience. So there's this kind of pressure to reintroduce the possibility of error, even if it's reintroduced in a different way. Because yeah. you don't have that Cinderace's conscience distinction anymore. Is there anyone who recovers that distinction later on in Protestant thinking? Not, not to my knowledge. I mean, I'm sure that there are some contemporary thinkers who who would do so. Yeah, that's just really interesting that that would fall away like that. Um, cause I mean, just the way you're explaining it to me, it seems really useful to have that, that distinction. So. I mean, what did continue was the idea that, um, we, we make, we make mistakes in our interpretation of the natural law or application to, to particulars. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that basic idea, it just wasn't, that distinction wasn't really made in connection with cinderaces and conscience anymore. Got it. So. What about the concept of instinct? Is that synonymous with conscience or any of these terms, or is that distinct completely? So this is something that's really interesting, specifically in Calvin's thought, because he sees conscience, as we've just said, as this kind of immediate access to God's judgment on your actions. So conscience is, is, gives, you could say it gives the intellect access to the natural law, because God's God's judgment on our actions is is moral law, right? So, so conscience gives us access access to that. But he also thought that our instincts give us access a different kind of access to the natural law, and, and it gives it by way of the will. So, not by way of the intellect, but by way of the will. But he makes this important distinction. He says it it um, shows us what is advantageous to us or what is beneficial to us instinct it's conscience shows us what is just our instincts show us what is advantageous now sometimes what is advantageous is also what is just but given that we're fallen we tend to have an undue preference for our own advantage over that of others so often there's a significant difference between what is just and what is advantageous. So you can't just rely on instinct. Now, why is this important? I mean, it's important because that's exactly what the modern natural lawyers wanted to do. They wanted to rely on instinct. They didn't want to rely on conscience. Because uh, con- con- yeah. you know, conscience was, that was going to appeal to something that seemed murky and not, and not adequately empirical. Hmm. That's fascinating. Okay, so that, that's that's really interesting. So, I also want to ask 
this is so, somewhat higher level than I guess because we've been talking about some more specifics in reform thinking and Catholic thinking. But I, I want to ask you, just broadly speaking, can virtue exist in a secular society? Um, and if so, how does that practically look? What what's my role in that? What's um, you know our senator or our president's role in that? What does that look like if it's possible to create virtue in a secular society? So first of all, I'm glad you're bringing virtue into the conversation because if you think about, well, we could have this wonderful, wonderful account of the principles of natural law. Mm. And then we're trying to apply them. And we talked about the challenges of applying them. Yeah. Well, so what allows you to actually apply them well? And what allows you to follow them? And that's where the virtues come in. You know, this idea that one needs the virtues in order to actually make something of the natural law. Right. Is virtue possible in a secular society? I mean, in some sense, I guess my question would be, what is it? What's a secular society, right? Yeah. Um, a society in which Christians are a minority or a pluralistic society. I mean, let's just assume it means a pluralistic society. Yeah. I'm good with that. And, you know, I would go all the way back to Augustine for, for a, a good start to an answer to this question. It's a complex start, but it's a good one. So... <laughs> Um, on the one hand, Augustine um, says that the only true virtues are, are virtues that are ordained, that are ordered to God. That God is our end. We have to be, we have to be um, organizing all of our activity toward the love of God, or else it's not virtuous. But that's not the whole story, because he also clearly admires a whole host of Roman heroes. Um, and sees them as having instantiated various virtues that Christians should also be instantiating. So it's it's not a simple thing of saying that only Christians in a secular society have virtue and nobody else. Added to that, he would say, all right, so if those pagans don't have full virtue because they're not ordained, you know, they're not ordering themselves to God, Christians don't have perfect virtue because virtue in this life is always just a struggle. It's always imperfect. We're, we remain fallen, even if we're Christian, even if we're striving to um, love God. So there's different kinds of imperfect virtues that we have in a secular pluralistic society. So again, the, the scholastics um, are helpful here because they give us more uh, maybe a better conceptualization of this. So they say, well, if you look around at, you know, your ordinary non-Christian, that person is working toward all sorts of good ends. And let's just let's just pick pick one important one, which would be, you know, a well-ordered society in which we can live peaceably with one another. Um, and, you know, that's a good end. And there are virtues that. Um, assist us in, in uh, bringing about that end. And you don't have to be Christian to have those virtues. But those are proximate ends. And then there's this end beyond that, which is this end of friendship with God. And so Christians and non-Christians, um, in some sense, are aiming at very different ends, because the Christian is going to say that, well, this end of living peaceably in, in, in civil society is 
really only makes sense if you understand it as part of seeking right relationship with God and relating to God and everything that God has created accordingly. But on the other hand, you know, there's plenty of common ground that uh, Christians and non-Christians could be collaborating in this proximate end, this end that's a little bit closer to us, uh, even, if the, even if there's not agreement in the final end, in the end, that the ultimate end, the thing that we're ultimately going for. So, I, I mean, I still find that actually a very helpful way to think about how we might live um, in a religiously and otherwise diverse society today, to, to just be looking for common ground, to be looking for shared commitments without expecting that um, all of our commitments will be the same or that our ultimate commitments will be the same and not precluding not precluding possibilities for cooperation, not just assuming that, oh, it's poisoned, you know, that this is the world and we have to be hostile to the world because otherwise we're not being loyal to God. And I think that that sets us up for not being able to collaborate and cooperate with others. Um, that doesn't, doesn't mean giving up on uh, the, the commitment to allowing our grasp of all of reality to be transformed by seeing it as God's good gift, right? Or all of our grasp of reality to be transformed by seeing ourselves as fallen but still beloved by God. Of course, that's transformative. Of course, that makes yeah. a difference. Awesome. So this has all been really, really helpful and fantastic. And I imagine we have a lot of listeners who are probably sitting here saying now, uh, okay, this is great. I want some more resources to read and to understand and think about just ethics in general, uh, virtues in general. What would your recommendations be for someone who say they've read some basic introductory ethical texts? What are some key resources um, that you would recommend everybody should be reading to understand just ethics and virtues in general. And if you want, I mean, I love, I like all your resources. Tell, tell us your fa the favorite book you've written, or maybe the favorite article you've written. You just, this, if there was one piece that you wanted everybody to read from what you've done, what would that be? Well, I mean, there are lots of things that one should read that are not that are not mine. Um, and I certainly, <laughs> I certainly would encourage people to read um, Alistair McIntyre, which is where I got started mm -hmm. thinking about virtue and he remains very important. Um, and the works of, of Stanley Hauerwas. Um, yeah. I would recommend the works of Jean Porter um, in the Catholic tradition, but she has a, very much an ecumenical lens and really has been transformative. Um, specifically in the reformed recovery of natural law and the, his, the historical works of David Van Drunen on mm -hmm. that topic are, are really high quality. But if I, you know, if I was going to point to something of my own, um, I would, I would point to putting on virtue, which is unfortunately not an article. It's, it's a book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit more of a commitment, but, um, it, it was an opportunity for me to really explore in a, um, you know, in a, in a more leisurely way to really unpack um, as, as richly as I could this vision of, of Christians being able to 
take up a positive stance to the world and grounding that in reflection that reaches all the way back to Augustine. Yeah. Um, so a lot, a lot of it is unpacking uh, developments in, in the early modern world, but it's very much um, driven by the moment that we inhabit today. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. So then I need to go get myself a copy of that. I'll do that this afternoon and I'll read it. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm always trying to read all of our guests material beforehand, but I'm never able to actually read everything. Um, so I will definitely check that out myself. And having read your other stuff that I have, I can definitely commend it to all of our listeners to go check it out. I mean, even if you just listen to this interview, you know, it's going to be good material and helpful. So Everybody who's been tuning in, I, I recommend you guys look through Dr. Hertz material. You can find, you've got a bunch of your stuff. Like if I Google you on, Ye- on the Yale website, it seems like, I think they've got pretty much everything listed there, don't they? Yeah, actually my, my CV is on there. So you can, okay, you can perfect. see all of it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's typically what I do is I just go find people's CVs. I just Google their name and CV and it usually comes up. So if you go to Yale's website, find Dr. Hurt. Uh, you'll be able to find all of her resources material as well as I'm going to put uh, several of these highlighted ones in the show notes. So if you're listening, you just scroll down and click on it and it'll take you the link to to where you can buy it and uh, recommend checking those out. So Dr. Hurt, thanks a ton uh, for joining us. This was really informative, really, really helpful. Uh, and I'm very thankful you were willing to take the time to talk with us. Absolutely, Jordan. It was a treat. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks. And everybody who's been listening, as you know, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.